leadership anxiety, yours and theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, hi there, friends. Hey, one of the reasons we do this podcast is, is we know that this kind of material, uh, paying attention to chronic anxiety, noticing the issues in your life that are bubbling under the surface, paying attention to the way anxiety spreads in groups, uh, we know that the best way to put this into practice is to externalize, to get with a group of people you trust, and to be able to have an, a, a safe opportunity to process it. And that's why I'm offering in, uh, in March of 2020 a two-day facilitated experience over the materials that I cover in my book and some of the topics we cover on this podcast. March, Tuesday, March 10th and the 11th, you can come to beautiful Colorado and you can sit in a round table with five or six other people, maybe people from your team, maybe you'll come by yourself and you'll sit with others. And uh, me and my team will be helping you process, externalize, discuss the concepts that I write about in my book. So if you want to get a deep dive over a couple of days into family systems theory, into the sources of chronic anxiety, into the universal sources, the unique sources, if you want to dive into what a childhood vow is, how to do a genogram, the power of a verbatim, all of these tools I talk about in the book, you can sign up for the facilitated experience in March 2020. Just go to my website, stevecusswords.com, and you'll see where to click there to buy tickets. You can come as an individual, or you can bring a whole team. There's a group rate as well. And the early bird rate expires in December, end of December. But today's guest is Trisha Taylor. I was really excited to get Trisha on the show because she's a fellow family systems theorist. She's got a deep background, 25 plus years in family systems theory. She's a psychotherapist. She's a fellow in the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, and she holds a state license in the state of Texas in counseling. And she's also an ordained minister. Uh, she, along with Jim Harrington, co-founded Faith Walking, and she and Jim now run uh, The Leader's Journey, which is an amazing leadership coaching group. I'll put a link to their website. She's authored the book, The Leader's Journey. She's also authored Leading, uh, excuse me, Learning Change. And I began by asking Trisha how she got into family systems theory. I was introduced to it in, uh, in graduate school. You know, you get the little unit on it and I thought it was interesting and I thought it was good and I filed it away in my family therapy um, notes. And then it, I really didn't think about it again until it started gaining some traction uh, among churches and, and leadership. Uh, folks. I think Robert Creech was the first person who put me on to generation to generation, and that opened the door for me. And I will say at this point, I am by no means an expert, but I am really a disciple or an evangelist. Family systems theory has changed my life. So that's kind of where I come from. So give us a little bit, give us an example of how it's shifted your life. Uh, in some ways, it dovetailed really nicely with the way I was raised. My parents, although they, as far as I know, they were never exposed to the theory, um, really um, had the value of, for example, being able to separate feeling and thinking. And, and both were acceptable, but they were different. And they knew how to articulate that in my family, for example. Um, the idea that I am myself and my own person 
um, I remember knowing that as young as four or five, you know, my parents wow. really knew how to convey that. And the other people were their own people. Um, I can remember my parents telling me one time, um, trying to explain to me why I shouldn't be so bossy, that other people's job wasn't to do what I thought they needed to do. <laughs> and, you know, that I mean, to be bossy, I just thought everybody needed to, get, needed to get with the program. And so I remember them explaining that to me in a way that made sense to me as a child. So on the one hand, it took what I grew up with further. But on the other hand, it put into words, um, and this may be a big leap, but it put into words what I think is so remarkable about the way that Jesus lived and led that I had never been able to put my finger on before. And that just came clear for me. Um, as I read the Gospels, that what Bowen was describing in a secular way was what Jesus modeled um, throughout the narratives of the Gospels. So, Yeah, I, I was reading uh, the end of the book of Acts this morning. I'm just in Acts right now. And uh, marveling, because I'm right now doing some work on... Um, I'm, I'm looking at writing... a. a, a like a biblical narrative of some characters in the Bible and how family systems comes alive, you know. And there's Paul, uh, surely about to be shipwrecked, actually uh, getting everyone's um, anxiety, de-escalating it, breaking bread, giving thanks, having this like uh -huh. Eucharist right before right. they... And I'm like, holy smokes, <laughs> right. it's really amazing. Being able to define himself really calmly. Wouldn't you love to have video of that? Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I would love an opportunity to ask him what's going on under the surface. Like, how much work did he have to do to get there? I yeah, really yeah, I, I agree. Um, Friedman spent a lot of time, and and others have on the patriarchs, which makes sense since he was a rabbi. But the Book of Acts is also a wonderful place to go to look at what reactivity and emotional maturity looks yeah. like in the faith context and the leadership context. Yeah. So when you were first exposed to it in graduate school, you then, you learn some terms, probably the eight concepts I'm guessing. Um, mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to try something out on you, Trisha. My experience is people learn about it and then they get into some cycle of shame because they should know better by now. Like now they know what to do, but they keep going back to the old way. Did you have that uh -huh. encounter as well yeah. or that experience? Oh, I was so young. I probably wasn't insulated from some of that. Um, I didn't have the self-awareness I have now. But um, I do remember being so reassured once when um, in one of his books, Ronald Richardson identifies where he thinks he is on the differentiation of self-scale. And it was so much lower than, you know, what I would have thought about yeah. him. And that was so freeing to say, okay, this isn't a grade and I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have to compete and there's not any, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. This is how human beings are. When I talked about it, when I talk about anxious reactivity in a group, I reference that because people do sometimes go straight to shame or to defensiveness, yes. which is part yeah. of shame, right? And I often say, what we're talking about here is anxious people doing what anxious people do. It's what we do when we do what we do. And so it's human. And I think that helps. Um, yeah. 
but I hope it does, for us not to take it on as some kind of of grade where we're competing with one another or competing with some impossible ideal. Yeah, yeah worse yet, competing with our, ourself. Yeah. Yeah, so if Ronald Richardson can be under the 50 mark, yeah. you know, okay, then I'm okay showing up there yeah, too. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Okay, yeah, so you mentioned differentiation. We have covered it before, but I think it would be really helpful for you to give us a definition and then let's dig in on it for people. Yeah, there's probably not one definitive definition. So I'm just going to maybe describe the way I think Great. about it. Um, but I think in its, in its most distilled form, it's the capacity to be both defined and connected. It's the extent to which we can be defined and connected in emotionally intense circumstances. And so um, by defined, what I mean is that we can, we can define with our words and our actions who we are, what we believe, what we think, what we'll do or won't do. And, and I think this is really important, we can allow others to do the same. So we're, we're defining ourselves as only half the the process of self-definition, I think. The other half is allowing others to define themselves. And, you know, I think most of us, I think most of your listeners um, struggle on one side of that more than the other side. Either we struggle to define ourselves, um, we will give up self, we'll pretend, we'll hide, we'll stay superficial, anything that avoid having to define who we are, what we think, what we believe, or we have no trouble with that, but we have a hard time allowing other people to do the same thing for themselves. And so then on being able to do that, be defined in those two ways, and at the same time be connected um, and connected in healthy ways. Um, that's how I think of uh, differentiation. Does that line up with how you have thought yeah, about it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think there's one tight definition. I think this is why people struggle with it so much because it's so conceptual. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'll give a brief definition then. And I'd love if you could give us a story of what that looked like in your life because I think that really helps people. When you walk into a room or when there's an engagement, how did you practice differentiation of self? Yeah, I, I would simply say it's it's the clarity of where you end and the other begins. Mm-hmm. And and for people who tend toward enmeshment, I think of it as a Venn diagram. And so mm-hmm. enmeshed people, there's there's no space between them. And there's, there's, uh-huh. there's, it's all like one circle, but then detachment, there's way too much space. Um, yeah. So yeah, the way mm-hmm. I, like, like in the mm-hmm. Bible, uh, Matthew says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. That's, that's enmeshment. <laughs> I've never seen that. <clears throat> yeah. And <laughs> yes, of course they are uh-huh. because he's a despot and a tyrant, but their uh-huh. mood is completely dictated by his. And, and then the other side, I would say in Australia, we use a fairly crass term where we will say, you know, I don't, I don't like that person so much that if they were on fire, I wouldn't even cross the street to pee on them to put them out. You know, that <laughs> yes. would be the opposite. Uh-huh. Um, I've heard that in Oh, Texas sure. Too. Yeah, we probably have some similarities. <laughs> yeah. But give us an example from your life. What does it look like in your life? 
Hmm. I mean, so many places that I could go. Um, in terms of a positive example, one of the places where I still marvel at my own and a congregation's ability to stay defined and connected was in the process of my ordination, which has been now, I don't know, years and years ago. But I was ordained in a denomination that very explicitly does not ordain women. Wow. But that at the same time leaves the decision about ordination up to the local congregation. And so... Um, uh, I have actually never met another woman ordained in a church like mine um, that was not also affiliated with some other denomination. So um, what happened then was that, you know, I put out my um, uh, my call to ministry, what I which I'd expressed many times. I preached in the church and um, just put out there that that this is something that I would like to pursue and. This was a brand new idea for these folks, right? And the ordination council, of course, was all men. And they'd never even, as far as I know, even thought about something like this. But they had very immediate negative reaction to it, right? They just knew that it was wrong. And it was, you know, of course, that wasn't something we would do. But they stayed open and curious with me, allowing me to define myself and how I had come to the conclusion that I had. And they were willing to listen open-mindedly. And then they took that on, looking at the scriptures, talking to other people, doing some research. And um, this process happened back and forth until finally they agreed to um, accept me as a candidate for ordination and to take a vote. But they decided it had to be a unanimous vote. And um, I don't know what you know about the church, but there are not many unanimous votes in the church. And so I pretty much thought that was it, that, you know, that was the end of the road. Um, what, what was so remarkable to me was my ability to stay connected to this group of men during this time when I really thought they were closing a door that was really important to me and my ability to not try to define them so much as to define myself. And then I was staggered at their willingness to stay connected to me and not isolate me or marginalize me and um, um, hear what I had to say and stay open and curious. And I'll just say as an aside, I've come to believe along with some friends of mine that the opposite of anxiety is not calm, but the opposite of anxiety is curiosity. And oh, so, wow. I wish my um, wife was here right now. <laughs> My wife, like <laughs> my wife's a therapist, and she's she works a lot in internal family systems, play therapy okay. for kids, and she's on this whole bender of curiosity being the most powerful tool to disarm anger and emotions. So that's a that's a beautiful word you just gave us. Absolutely. The, the end of the story is that I went in and had the interview process and defined myself and went home, had no idea what was going to happen, and the the chairman of the ordination council came to my house with a stack of ballots, about 15 or 20 ballots, each marked yes, and put them in my lap and said, you know, this is a miracle. And that, so that is a story for me of when that worked, when it happened the way I think um, it is designed to. And then of course, I have a million other stories um, where that doesn't happen. 
it right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. oh, that's such a beautiful story, though. I mean, that must have been an incredibly powerful moment when he came over for you on so many levels. One of the most powerful of my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As I listen to your story, Trisha, the, the, the idea I want to explore is how much, like, like credit to these guys for being willing to mm-hmm. open a door they've never opened before. But how much credit must go to your ability to differentiate so that you were the least threatening? Like you weren't letting them off the hook. As I hear your story, you weren't saying, hey, guys, I know it's okay if this doesn't work out. You weren't doing that kind of game. Right. But surely your ability to be a non-threatening prophetic voice um, was part of what made them open. Is that fair? I've had conversations with some of them since then, and I definitely think that's fair. They had seen me doing the work of ministry for a decade up to that point. You know, this was this happened in the context of a long relationship where they had seen me doing the work of ministry and had seen my gifts and my calling in action without any demand for a certain response on their part, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so that's part of what happened. And that, that was a painful time for me. Yeah. And those, those years where um, I was doing the work, but, you know, without any kind of um, affirmation from the church, capital C, yeah. um, that, that my calling to ministry was, was valid in the way that our denomination typically um, affirms that. Um, And at the same time, trying to remember that I could define myself, which is one reason I always accept an invitation to preach, because it is a way of defining myself in a congregation that may not have ever seen anyone, have seen a woman define herself that way before. Oh, that's great. Yeah, just by naming your identity as a preacher. Exactly. Is a differentiated move. Yes, exactly. Um, And at the same time, recognizing that they could be in a different place, they could read the scriptures differently, and um, that there could be more than one valid way to read the scriptures, and that we could stay connected while we work that out. Yeah, I think that is the magic source of differentiation, particularly in today's culture of outrage. Um, I think differentiation is a powerful tool for prophetic voices Particularly, like, I'm always uncomfortable talking about this, Trisha, because as a white male lead (laughs) pastor, I am the very essence of the center of power. Um, (laughs) Also, as an Australian, I have more power than even a white American sometimes because I'm a novelty. Like, most people just love Aussies, you know, we're kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying it, but I do, as, as marginalized people have found a voice, we've now moved into full-blown outrage. It feels to me that learning how to be differentiated while prophetic is a, will get you further than, than throwing these grenades. Yes, yes. And sometimes we look at people who are just kind of being rude and call it prophetic (laughs) you know i mean the prophets the prophets in scripture and i think in most of history what they were doing was defining themselves in words and actions in a way that people couldn't look away from and i think that's the essence of what it means to be prophetic 
Oh, that's a great word. I, I was listening to um, Krista Tippett on being, mm-hmm. and she had John Lewis on the show, mm-hmm. and he walked her through. He reenacted for her the the march on Selma Bridge, and how he and Dr. King and others had trained each other and their followers to maintain eye contact as the person was was abusing you. It was mm-hmm. um, it was absolutely profound to listen to him talk about. It's very difficult for somebody to decide you're not human when you're looking them right in the eye. Yes, and and, think- and the word you use, training, is really important there, mm. right? It's not just enough for us to connect with our values. It is absolutely imperative that we practice. We cannot just go into the most anxious situations in our lives and expect to show up differently unless we have practiced. And, and you know, the stories are how they practiced literally. I mean, they took some, some blows yeah. um, from other people in their camp to practice being able to do what you're describing. Yeah. Um, I went through, this is not nearly so dramatic, but I went through a period of listening, almost forcing myself to listen to a particular radio show that I found so offensive to practice managing my reactivity, my physiological reactivity, as well as learning to say, why would a reasonable person believe this? What is in what this um, radio host is saying that makes sense to people, even though it doesn't make sense to me? And, um, you know, I think I worked up from like 90 seconds to about 10 minutes. That was probably my top. <laughs> but That's a hard-fought number, I think. That's a well-earned number. Yeah, but it, it was literal practice. It felt like a workout, right? And I think we have to put ourselves in places where we're willing to practice. Oh, I love that. Okay, so somebody is listening to this or maybe they've read some of your materials on mine on differentiation or Roberta Gilbert or the any number of people that sure. have written about it. Um, and they're thinking, okay, what's the next two or three things I can do to start practicing it? What, how would you coach someone on that? Expose yourself to people who disagree with you, who see the world differently from you. Um, that's absolutely necessary. And then that helps us practice um, exposing ourselves to the people who are closest to us. You know, I think we can do practice away from our parents, our siblings, our spouses, our children, so forth. Um, and that is valuable practice. It helps us learn some skills. But ultimately, we have to come back, right, to um, the place. You know, they say your family can push your buttons because they installed them. You know, <laughs> we've got to learn um, to, to be able to show up in a, in a differentiated way in those closest relationships. But I think we can practice in all kinds of relationships. And I think the key with practice is that I don't have an expectation of mastery or perfection, right? I'm practicing, which means I will make mistakes and I'll come away, clean up the mess, hopefully, and try again another time. Um, and, And there are, you know, the practice doesn't have to be um, joyless, you know, it can be fun. Um, I can remember noticing as my siblings and I were putting together a, uh, um, anniversary outing with my parents, 
um, for their 50th anniversary, how much I tend with my siblings. I'm the oldest and the oldest daughter. And I just tend to show up with my siblings like the cruise director, right? You know, who um, puts everything together and then graciously lets people choose from options. Just like when you were four, by the sound of it, when you (laughs) were sure, yeah. Yes. And so I decided that at least for these couple of days while we were away with my parents, I was just going to sit back and see what happened. And it was really remarkable. The conversations went in directions that I never would have expected. And um, I don't know if they noticed that I wasn't actually jumping in with topics for us to talk about. It was just sitting back and letting things emerge. But for me, it was a fun time to practice. I got to see a side of my siblings that I don't usually see as they stepped into that role. And I also learned that they don't really need me to do that for them. All right. I think you've hit on two actually really powerful um, ways to practice. One is you've injected playfulness. You just said it doesn't have to be, I don't remember your word, but it doesn't have to be (laughs) earnest. It can be fun. Uh And playfulness is a wonderful tool for differentiation. But you also described the ability to kind of be a sociologist of your own self, Mm -hmm. where you're almost watching yourself do it while doing it. That's, That's another great technique, I think. Yes, I think you're right. That's definitely um, a good technique. And and it's one that we have to develop. It doesn't come naturally, right? At first, we only see what we're doing in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And then with practice, we can learn to see what we're doing as it's happening. Yeah. Or even you can see it's going to come down the road. And then, then we can see it coming down yeah. the road. Hey, I'm the right. type of person that gets offended by this. And I'm in this meeting. I think it's probably going to happen. So therefore, yeah. So I literally write myself notes in meetings where I know that that things are likely to get stirred up. I I write myself notes on my handy little steno pad just to keep myself focused. And that's probably another way that I practice is I think ahead of time. I know what's likely to happen. How do I want to show up? And then make myself notes to remind myself to do that. I think that's really helpful too. Because you, you're giving us a, a very tangible um, tool, which is that you can learn to predict the likely environments where you're going to be anxious. Yes. Yes, I know myself pretty well. Right. And it's not inevitable now. Now you have some extra mm. power and tools. That's mm-hmm. really great. Yeah. 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 And that just comes with experience and with doing the work, right? I wish there was a shortcut, but there's not. And I also find out things about myself. Like I found out this week that I am a lot more competitive than I ever thought I was. So now I'm curious about, whoa, what does that mean? And why has that not shown up, you know, mm-hmm. in different ways before now? So if we talk again a year from now, maybe I'll know more about that. Oh, but good. I'm just trying to watch it and yeah. see what that means. Well, and maybe a year from now, you'll do an even better podcast than the one you did this year. You'll, <laughs> you'll compete and win. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, Trisha, you, you coach people on fusion, on um, understanding differentiation through the lens of fusion. Could you tell us a bit about that? I think it's just one of those things, like you said earlier, that differentiation is sometimes the hardest concept to really um, – Uh, understand practically or concretely, but talking about its opposite, 
talking about fusion sometimes gives people, I think, access to the concept. And so most people understand the idea of being stuck together emotionally with other people. And um, the, the analogy that I use to, there are a couple of analogies I use with people. And one is this, um, I want you to just think about when you're sitting at a light and you're trying to turn left against traffic, right? So you're looking for an opening to turn. And then the guy behind you honks, right? And now you're stirred up, this has your attention, and you're likely to react in one of two ways, either to say, oh my goodness, someone's upset, I really need to turn, or to kind of lean back with your hand over the steering wheel and say, yeah, I'm not going anywhere, you know. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to wait till the light is almost red and keep him stuck. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. And so um, I talk about how you are in that moment fused to an individual emotionally. They are determining or this interaction with them is determining your feelings and your behaviors. And you don't even know who they are. And now extrapolate that to family you grew up in or the family that you created as an adult and um people always laugh knowingly because they see themselves and so then being able to say when we're fused we are we are um being determined by our feelings and our behaviors are being determined by our interaction with another person and the anxiety that exists in that interaction And so, you know, when people say things like, um, well, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I only did it because of what they did, right? There's fusion and we can learn to recognize it. Or when when people have the sense, or not people like me, when I have the sense, I can't be okay unless you're okay, or I can't be okay unless you change. Or I can't be okay unless you do this thing that I really need you to do. And then I'm putting all my energy and my focus on that. Then I'm fused. I'm stuck to you. It's almost as though we're not just holding hands in our connection. We're handcuffed together, you know, which is, um, gives both of us a lot fewer options and choices. And we're not able to get the separateness and the togetherness. Um, Um, One way that I see myself doing this all the time is that someone will call for an appointment or call, you know, to to do something with me to have have, um, some of my time. And I will know that I don't want to give away that time. And I really don't want to disappoint that person. And so in moments of fusion where I, you know, I will give away time that I don't want to give away that my myself is that my healthy self is saying no, don't do this. But I will give it away because I anticipate the other person's disappointment, and I am so fused their disappointment and my discomfort about them being disappointed that that is what determines actions. So that would be an example of that.
Friends, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've noticed that once in a while we'll talk about a concept like differentiation, or we'll name a particular source of anxiety like triangulation or a double bind, but we're just giving you little pieces of the larger pie on this podcast. That's why I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience in 2020, March 10th and 11th, right here in beautiful Colorado. A two-day facilitated experience is different than a conference in that at a conference, you often sit through a whole lot of monologue. But for these two days, you'll be sitting round table and not only will we give you a whole bunch of tools and a whole bunch of sources to help you understand anxiety, but we'll also give you a lot of time and I'll be putting you with some trained facilitators so you can try on these principles in the moment. I know that two days is a lot to give up nowadays, but you're going to come away not just knowing sources of your own anxiety, but also learning how to pay attention to anxiety in groups. So for example, just a couple of things that we'll be covering, uh, you'll come away knowing the 19 universal sources of anxiety that are common to us all, but you'll also come away having helped identify some of your own unique sources of anxiety that get you worked up, even though it may not get someone else worked up. We'll also be teaching you how anxiety is a spiritual dark force and how the nature of anxiety can be displaced with the grace of God in the moment. But not just for you, also for those with whom you're in a team. We'll be teaching some powerful tools like second order change and differentiation. We'll be helping you learn how to do a genogram and how you can break some long-term generational traits in yourself. Also, you'll learn how to notice recurring predictable patterns and how to reverse them in any group or any team or even in your family. This is perfect for a team. That's why we have uh, discounted tickets for groups of four or more. I'm also offering an early bird rate until the end of December. You can get more information at my website, stevecusswords.com. Two-day facilitated experience, March 10th and 11th in the Denver area. So I'm, I'm very interested in helping people um, realize that some sources of anxiety are because of a childhood wound, or that's for sure. But actually, some sources are just environmental, that if you're going to be in this kind of environment, it's going to generate anxiety for everybody. Uh, I think one of the common environments for all of us is when you don't know what to do as a leader, but you have to do something. Um, do you have a story where you were in a position of leadership or coaching and you weren't sure what to do, but it was your job to do the next thing? Could you tell us what that was? And then let's explore what was happening under the surface in you. So I think that happens every day, right? Because everyone is different. Everyone I coach is different. Every consulting, um, situation I'm in is different. And so, um, um, yes, um, when someone is working on something, maybe that um, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is, and I don't know how to help them get to the right answer. Um, I would say that happens regularly. So and what's so happening under the surface in you yeah. when you are feeling obligated to be helpful? Or is that what it is? Like you feel like I should have the answer because I'm a coach? or 
Sure. Sometimes I have a voice that says, you know, they're paying you to pull a rabbit out of the hat. So where's your rabbit? Where's the rabbit? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So when that happens, I've learned to tune in. Um, I can, I can feel that in my, in my gut, you know, my head can get very, very noisy. Um, When I know I'm in trouble, when I know I really need to take a step back, when I start to feel my face and my neck flush, then I know I'm flooded and I really need to, to, to pull back. One of the things I love about working in a team, I almost always, except for individual one-on-one coaching, I work with a team, is that uh, you know other people can recognize when that's happening and step in and kind of um, you know help me buy some time. But yeah, that's the thing. Feel it in my belly. My head gets really loud um, and often not very nice. And then if it continues, my neck and face will flush. Okay. Yeah, very good. Um, When I was in seminary, you know, we had all these pastors come in and tell us that we're going to have to get used to criticism. It's just the nature of the job. And if you're a leader, you get criticized. And that was fine. I, I was not surprised by criticism. What has surprised me is two things. Cumulative criticism. Mm. Like I'm okay with the occasional shot, but um, seasons where I'm getting, I'm feeling attacked on many fronts can almost take me out. The mm. other side that my wife and I have learned is the, the, um, the, the collateral damage that she pays because I'll come home hurt from criticism and I'll share it with her. And then sometime in the next day or few weeks, that person and I have resolved it and I've never circled back with my wife. And so she never gets resolution. We learned this 15, 17 years ago. I was in a really toxic relationship with a boss who was a pathological narcissist. It was rough. And, um, and, and she paid a heavier price. I was not aware of the price she was paying so I'd like to explore cumulative criticism and secondhand collateral mm. damage because I know like you're ordained, but your husband's also a pastor and I think he's actively a pastor now. Right, yes. I yeah, have. what would you like to tell us about that? <laughs> so he has been a pastor um, for the 34 years we've been married with the exception of three years. And um, that secondhand criticism is tough, Right. Uh, I remember one time um, there, you know, it's interesting. There's the cumulative criticism and that sometimes there's the, the one source of criticism, right? The one place in the system where that is the only note they know how to play. Right. And there was a woman in our congregation who um, the only note she knew to play was criticism. And it was terrible because she was a friendly, she was friendly to me. And she was terrible to my husband. I mean, really vicious. And I called my sister one day and I said, I don't even know if this person is my friend or my enemy because she treats me very nicely, but she's treating Craig like this. I don't know how to treat her. And my sister, who was probably, I don't know, maybe 18 or 19 at the time, said, well, I, I thought that if you're a Christian, you have to treat your friends and your enemies the same. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, but that, that was really confusing to me as a young minister's wife. Um, and then, 
you know, that was probably 25 years ago. Today, um, we are reeling right now from some criticism that my husband received when an email thread among people who were criticizing him accidentally got forwarded to him. He was not meant to see this, but because he, I don't know how it happened, but anyway, so he was able to see what people were saying and it has been really hard and it was very painful for him. But I think what I felt was the helplessness in that, that as he did his work about figuring out how he wanted to respond to that, I had no vote, you know, and I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to get my shots in, you know, and, um, um, that, that is a really difficult place to practice because on the one hand, I have to be really careful to remember that he is not me and I am not him and we are not the same person. And this is his job to do as the pastor and as the recipient of the criticism. It doesn't belong to me. And at the same time, to be able to be honest about the impact that that has on me. And, um, but my work is not to figure out how Craig should respond, although I have lots of ideas if he would just ask me, (laughs) but my work is to decide how I'm going to respond. And, you know, I don't always like that distinction. I'm, I'm trying to do an exercise in my own life right now and I'm failing at it. I'm trying to put a number to this. Um, Because I find in my own life and in a lot of leaders I know, sometimes we are the last to know when we're not okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just keep pressing on, pressing Mm -hmm. on, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, And so I'm trying to see, can I actually define a number of how much criticism can I manage in how much time before it's time for an intervention, before it's time for me to go fly fishing or um, yeah. and I, I, it's hard. It's, and I think it's hard because it, it, um, requires admitting weakness and I don't in fact have an unlimited capacity. I'm not in fact a punching bag, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. It's, I think it's interesting that you use that analogy because, you know, criticism creates an emotional wound. And if that were a physical wound, if somebody was coming to your office every day and beating you up, I think you would feel pretty okay about getting medical care or taking the day off or getting an ice pack or whatever you needed to do, as well as putting some things in place to make yourself safer. But when it's an emotional wound, we often won't give ourselves permission to do that. Yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah, I, I'm on this journey of studying it because I'm I'm just fascinated by the power of um, nuance and knowledge, and mm. and if we can really look at these broad topics like criticism or double binds or some some of these are obviously systems terms, but really f- understand the source and the nature, I think we can um, escape some of the damage that it does. So I'm going to float another. Since we're on this topic, I'm going to float another theory I've been noticing. Uh, several years ago, I'm, I'm the lead pastor of our church. One of my great leaders on staff was having troubles with um, one of her staff. And everything was blowing up, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And so we had to facilitate a meeting where I was involved too. And it was the first time I'd been keenly aware 
that you can be in a room and one leader is getting attacked and feeling knived and the rest of us aren't feeling it. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we're not aware of how much damage is being done. Does that mm, make sense? Absolutely. And the reason I wasn't aware of it is I was almost always the one getting knifed up until that point. <laughs> As the lead pastor, I tend to be the uh-huh, one that was right. getting hit. And then after that, I've watched it happen when I'm getting attacked and people are there and they are saying, oh, that wasn't so bad. And I'm like, I think I need to go to a hospital. Yes, exactly. Tell us your reaction to that. One of the most painful things about ministry for me for a long time was exactly that, that Craig or I could be in the situation where we were taking, felt like we were taking the punches and no one would do anything. And it felt like a double betrayal, right? I've, I've come to see it and more from a systems perspective. Yeah, that's right. Um, that reminds me that first of all, they're not having the same experience that I am. Yeah. Um, in, in that moment. Um, and also that they may find themselves in a really precarious place of not wanting to rescue me in an unhealthy kind of way, trusting that I'll be able to handle myself, which can be a really healthy thing to do. Um, or maybe they're just being cowards, you know, but I don't know. And um, that there are more possibilities than just cowardice or just obliviousness helped me a lot yeah i've i've had leaders even recently coached me these leaders are under me uh, hierarchically but coaching me saying hey you always look like you have it together mm-hmm. so right. i need i need a signal when you're hurting and mm-hmm. i i totally get it i've been accused of that most of my adult life is when i'm insecure or don't know what to do i'll then just overcompensate mm-hmm. with confidence Right, And it is also part of my differentiation of self as I'm trying to manage my reactivity. But to them, they're like, oh, you look like you're doing just fine. And Mm -hmm. that's been a helpful gift for me to let them in on my pain. Absolutely. Because then they're very happy not to rescue or to demonize, but at least to be aware, yeah. To be an ally, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Okay, well, that's that's a fun conversation. It yeah. really is because criticism is part of the job with leadership. And and let me just say this one thing that has been life-changing for me in terms of managing criticism is that I learned to distinguish that people disagreeing with me is not criticism. Yeah. I think early on, I felt like anytime somebody was disagreeing with me, they were saying I was wrong. And so therefore they were criticizing me. And Life is so much better now that I've learned to make that distinction. And there are still times like this week where the, the criticism is intensely personal and that does feel different. Yeah, you never I – think, I think what is encouraging in you sharing this is you never get over that. Mm-mm. That will always be an uh, yeah. environment that will generate anxiety. Yes. And my husband said at one point this week, I – you know, I've been doing this for 34 years. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And I said to him, there is no way for you to not feel this way. There is no human being on the planet that could read what you just read and not feel the way. That's right. Yeah. The next question has to do with um, when problems become chronic. Mm. So we all have problems, but then some problems become repeatable and predictable. Uh, could you give us a story of a problem where you knew it was pre- predictable and repeatable, 
but you kept doing more of the same to solve it. <laughs> yeah, I one thing I would do would be to just go back to what I said earlier about how I manage my calendar. I mean, I know, I know where I'm vulnerable. And I and I use accountability with my friends and my husband. And I still fall down that, you know, I still will fall down that hole. And I'll come back to my um, ministry partner, Jim, or to my husband, Craig, and I'll say, well, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I, I did. And here's why. And here are all the good reasons. And they just look at me like, really, again? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I uh, took off the month of July as a way of practicing, um, not giving away my time. I just needed something radical. And I still ended up, although I, I'm going to say I did better than I thought I would, I still ended up giving away some pockets of time during that month that, um, you know, I wish I hadn't. So um, that may be my lifelong struggle. That's good. All right. My favorite question, especially because I think, you know, leaders are always pouring out and others focused. And I, I'm just fascinated by sometimes we're depleted because it's a simple input-output imbalance. Too much output, not enough input. So when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Mm. I am one of those people who is really blessed to be able to say that I feel most fully loved in my marriage. Um, my husband is, he knows how to love well. Um, not just me, but me, and I um, benefit from that. And it's the kind of shame-free love that I think a lot of people never experience. Early in our marriage, he came home one day. I was home with the children, and I don't know what had happened, but I was in a shame spiral. And he came home, and I was just wailing about... I can't do this. I'm terrible at this. I'm a terrible mother, all of that. And the first thing he did was take the children and put them in their beds. And then he came back and I just wailed to him. I am so flawed. And he walked across the room and he put my face in his hands and he said, you are flawed. You are wonderfully flawed. And that has been the way he has shown up for me know, ever since then, and it feels miraculous to me. I feel very deeply loved and accepted. Um, Just this week, I texted him about something I'd done, and I said, I'm so embarrassed. And he said, please don't be embarrassed. There's only love here. And um, so that is a place where I feel really deeply loved in a way that has been healing in my life. So obviously, Tricia, uh, this next question could be more about your husband, which is great, or it might bring to mind someone else. Either way, um, let's let's get specific about some life-giving people in your life. We all have people that we l- always look forward to being with them. Oh, it's, if I'm going to be with this person, it's just going to be a great time. I'm interested in in not everything about those situations, but just one or two things that make it life-giving. If you can really define what, whether it's about Craig 
or someone else in your life, or maybe this brings to mind to you, this population of people, it's because I feel this when I'm around them, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really lucky to have a group of friends and colleagues that I feel that way with. Um, I had to learn how to do friendship and collegiality. I didn't know how to do that from my growing up, but now I have, um, people that I work with and people that I'm friends with who have that um, ability to create a judgment-free zone, um, the capacity to stay curious, um, the ability, you know, I think every one of them are learners, you know, which is so life-giving for me when we can get together and talk about things in a way where we're learning something. Um, uh, One of my friends you know, she, she will, um, suggest that we like go on a trip to a beach together and I'll say, but there's this conference we can go to, (laughs) you know, there's just something about the learning together that is fun for me. And then I'm, I'm lucky to find that a lot with the people I coach. And, And I know, you know, this being in leadership, I mean, the worst part of leadership sometimes is the, but the best part of leadership it's definitely for sure, cool. especially if you had the but humility to learn from them. It's amazing. Yes, and and when I'm with, say, I'm in a consulting job and I'm with a team. This just happened this past weekend, and we're all starting to get it right. We're all starting. We've been working on this tangle for a while, and it's starting to loosen. And we all kind of look at each other with this love. Oh, did you see what just happened? I think I understand something I didn't before. That's the funnest thing. That's good. Trisha, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and your time. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.